Welcome to Feels Like Home, a home, garden, and design podcast with me, interior designer Sam Strzok. And me, stylist and photographer Eva Cosmos Flores. Each week, we'll bring you down-to-earth advice to help you create beauty in your living space and vibrancy in your garden. Along with insights and tips from our guests. Plus, every episode, we'll dive into listener mail and help you solve a garden or design problem. So send them on over to us at feelslikehomepodcast at gmail.com. So pull up a seat and make yourself at home. Hi, guys. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode. Good to have you here. Today, we're going to have our friend of the show, Melissa Melko, on later from Resilience Designs. And she's amazing. So we're really excited to uh, talk with her about all the veggie garden stuff because you know, the winter is a good time to start thinking about and planning out your garden for the spring. Um, So she'll be here to help with all that, all that good stuff. Great. Yeah. How are you doing, Sam? Good. Good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm a little hungry. We're going to have lunch after this, (laughs) but I'm doing good. Um, That's great. Yeah. Well, let's uh, start with our strides and struggles of the week. Why don't you kick it off? Cool. Uh, I'll start with my stride. So in addition to completing our uh, many other projects that we've been put on the list for winter. Our our favorite one of the time at this current moment is the primary closet. We built out oh, the, nice. pri- the primary closet. So nice. uh, when we first moved in, we had like a ton of just kind of random shelving. Like, honestly, there was like a garage shelf in our closet <laughs> and like one rod and then some miscellaneous dressers because it was just like we got to get in the house and yeah um it's just kind of one last thing we didn't want to deal with so we um put together all of our primary closet i don't know drawers and like boxes and whatnot so we did it through ikea it was just kind of one of the easy things to say like hey we just need to get this done yeah so we um yeah, we built it all out. We've got a ton of drawers and storage now. It looks great. Was it really nice to be able to plan for the exact type of clothing and amount that you need, like already had? So you could like measure and be like, well, I have this coat that I really love and I want to make sure that it's not like crumpled on the ground at like the bottom three inches or whatever. And just, yes. Yeah. So nice. I mean, it actually has my wedding dress in there, which Aww. is like, I it's the longest thing I own. So <laughs> uh, yeah, it just was nice to be able to like, put everything in a place whereas before it was sort of just like things were where they needed to be because that was what we had so now we definitely like the left side of the closet's jordan's the right side of the closet's mine i have a few more drawers than him and i had just have more clothes in general than him so (laughs) um but it's nice to like there's like pull out drawers so everything's kind of organized where it needs to go there's a jewelry drawer so it's like all organized it's so adult i know i feel like a, a big girl <laughs> wow is this is this what it means to like have a closet <laughs> i don't know apparently i didn't know i'd be so excited at the end of it to be honest but we walked in there and we we're like wow this actually looks really nice so yeah surprised well i feel like it's like the marie kondo thing like tidiness can really make it a lot easier to feel joyous yes, yes you're we... not stressed about where is this thing and you're searching for it and you can't find it right yeah. we love marie kondo oh, i actually yeah. have watched all of her Shows and I fold my laundry according to the Marie Kondo method. Yeah, I have been doing that for over probably honestly three years. Oh, it's been great. Yeah, um, yeah, so that was really fun. And then my struggle was uh, being stuck in the house because of the incredible amount of snow that we had. So, yeah, it just was a long, (laughs) long week. I feel like we, I think I counted it was like 20 five days of no school for the kids between because we rolled right from holiday break into the snowpocalypse of the gorge yeah because it started like the day after christmas or something it was a few days after christmas but it really started dumping like the day before the kids were supposed to go back to school so you know i think everyone that has school age kids like feels the rhythms and patterns of like your kids prepping to go back to school and then like every you like mentally prepare yourself for like tomorrow's the day <laughs> and then like your hope is slowly squashed and taken away and you're just like okay this is I love my kids I love being at home and it was really sweet to have extra time with them but you know like we're used to having space where we can like go and run around the farm or like just getting out of the house so when you're like literally stuck like the highway shut down stuck it just was just uh 
It was a lot. It was a lot. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, you can't go outside. No way to release all the energy. Yeah. Right. And yeah, you can't go anywhere. Did you have like food, some enough food at the house and stuff? So you didn't have to yeah. try to go to the grocery store or whatever? Generally, people in Hood River, we like check the weather pretty frequently. Nice. So yeah. um, we, everyone kind of on our peninsula down there had prepped and gotten several meals worth and we were totally fine food wise. We did have power outages that like happened especially. They all happened actually in the middle of the night, which just complicates things because they wake up your kids and mm. then you're just like, okay, we all got to sleep in the same room now. Make sure we stay warm. Yeah, like, we don't know cold. how long this is going to be. Yeah. So there's just like a whole procedure that happens when snow comes <laughs> that fast yeah. in our area. So you guys got a few feet. Yeah. I think at its worst, it was yeah right around three feet yeah. on our deck, like stacked Oof. up there. Oof. That's, yeah, that's a lot for this area because we're not used to that level of snow, especially this early in the winter. Right. Like usually snow comes around January, February here, not necessarily like December. Right. Well, and it's not very common for it to like all stack up that high mm -hmm. either. Like I think over a winter to get three feet isn't that bad, but it usually is like six inches, then it like melts away and then another six inches and then it melts away. Yeah. Whereas this was like. I think at the worst day, we got 27 inches in 24 wow. hours. Whoa. And so we were like, oh, this is a lot of snow. <laughs> so it's a little wild. But uh, we made it. But you guys made it. We made it out. Yay. So how about I, you? Uh, well, so my stride was working on another shoot that I was really excited about. My friend Gregory. So Gregory Gordy is a chef here in the Portland area, but he does cooking pretty much like all over so i shot his cookbook a couple years ago and he has a project coming up that i can't really say what it is but because it's a secret <laughs> but uh it was just fun creatively to be working with a client who was physically there because a lot of times now especially with covid most of the client shoots that i do are remote where you know we can't like talk about what they want and then i do it and shoot it and then like send it to them um, it's pretty rare to be able to have a client on set and be collaborating like with that person physically there. So it just felt really good to do that, you know, just to be working with another creative person in person is really, really nice. And I miss that a lot. So that felt really good. And the photos came out awesome. So I'm really excited for when it when the project eventually launches to have other people see them because I'm very proud. Every time I work with them, I just like feel like I'm do my best work. He's just such a creative guy, and he helps me look at food and styling and things in a different way because he has a very distinct idea of what he wants, which is so nice when you're working with someone who has like a solid vision because then it helps you not second guess things. You're like, okay, this is what he wants. We're going to go this way. But it's also a different way than my natural inclination of like how I personally style things because I'm like more rustic. He's got a more modern flair to his the way he plates and food and things. So it's just a really fun creative co collaboration. So that was really nice. Nice. And then with the the struggle, also had to do with the snow, actually. <laughs> we were planning to go to Montana to visit Jeremy's family because uh, his family's all in Missoula. And so usually we drive out there and it's like um, an easy two-day drive, like about six hours a day broken up mm -hmm. over a couple days. Um, and we were supposed to leave the day after Christmas, but, you know, we had an Airbnb booked and everything. But with the weather forecast looking the way it did, we started getting really nervous about driving there because the two days we were driving were going to be the days that we're going to have the most snow coming down. And we didn't want to be driving in like whiteout conditions because the second day of the drive is, well, the first day is all along the Columbia River Gorge, mm -hmm. so that was a little sketchy, as you know, because that got super snowed on. And then the second day, you're going basically through mountain passes, like really high elevations, so those would have been super duper snowy and icy. So we had to cancel our trip, and so that was a bummer because we really wanted to see Jeremy's family and have missed them a lot. We haven't seen him since the spring and that was hard because they, his family had like rescheduled Christmas to actually celebrate it when we were supposed to be there. So like they'd kind of missed out on like the Christmas day because they were waiting for us. But then we ended up not being able to come. So that was like a huge bummer. So that was just hard. It's hard to it's hard to do. And then with Omicron, we were also nervous about going on the road because Jeremy's grandma's, you know, older and we didn't right. want to 
pick something up at a gas station, you know, because in rural areas, you don't know how many people are actually wearing masks in like rest stops and stuff. So we were real nervous about that. So that was hard. um, But we're hoping to go out in the spring once there won't be so much snow and stuff and it'll be safer, safer to get over there. So that's our plan. So speaking of spring, this is a time where people usually start thinking about gardening. And if you're curious about growing your own vegetables this year, we have a really awesome guest joining us today, Melissa. So we're going to go ahead and dive into our interview with her. Want to beautify your photos of your home? I've made five beautiful Lightroom mobile presets that will bring brightness and beauty to your space, and you can grab them for free at feelslikehomepodcast.com. And today we're joined by Melissa of Resilience Design. Melissa Melko is a landscape designer based out of Portland, Oregon, who focuses on cultivating whole systems landscapes for sustainability, community, and learning. She's passionate about native plants, creative garden design, and creating beautiful and sustainable outdoor spaces. Welcome, Melissa. Hi, Eva. Hello. Hello, Sam. Hi. (laughs) How are you doing? I'm very well. Good. Yeah, we'll just go ahead and dive in. Tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're from and what you do. Sure. Well, Melissa Melko and... My company is called Resilient Design. I'm from the Midwest, the place where the tall grass very meets the oak savanna, the Twin Cities. And um, I, I grew up gardening there and being outdoors a lot. And then I moved here about 16 years ago to Portland. And I've been exploring the, the native plants and the garden scene and, and working here for that time. Awesome. And how did your interest in landscape design start? Well, I've always been really interested in plants since I was really little and, and grew up gardening with my parents. And I have always been interested in art and the two, the intersection of those two things have have led me to landscape design. And um, yeah, I knew pretty early on that I wanted to study art and also that I wanted to study plants and landscaping and gardening. And so um, I did both in my education. I, I went to school for plant biology and then I went to art school and got a fine arts degree, did a lot of printmaking and painting. Um, and then I went back to school for a landscape design degree. Um, and I started my first landscaping business when I was 20 and I, I kind of didn't know what I was getting into like I didn't I wasn't intimidated <laughs> was just like people started asking me like oh you're into plants can you help me I had a, a, a neighbor say like can you help me with my one of my clients has a rock garden and can you help them you know clean up their rock garden and so my sisters and I um yeah just started doing jobs for people and that we were on our way I feel like that is something that I did too when I was like really young just starting out I feel like ignorance is bliss in a way where you don't like know what could go wrong so you're like yeah i'm just gonna like dive in like head first (laughs) totally totally yeah (laughs) (laughs) oh because that's how you started too sam right like with design like just designing for some friends and then you yeah i I mean especially in hood river i had previously i in my past life i did design mostly just freelance for other designers so i wasn't client interfacing until probably 2016 really in Hood River and then we had just moved to Hood River in 2015 and um, just friends of mine were like I heard you do design can you help me with x y or z or colors for my house or this or that and yeah so it was totally just like helping friends out and kind of just following the referral trail. Yeah is that kind of how your your business grew from there too Melissa like referrals and then it just kind of blossomed yeah, it was totally word of mouth. I mean, it mostly still is. Yeah. Yeah, that's how I found out about you. So Melissa uh, and her partner, Michael of Resilience Design, are doing the landscape design for our homestead. And I heard about you guys from someone on Instagram because I put out a call a call out that, you know, we were looking for someone to help with, um, you know, managing the invasive species on the land we just got. And I don't remember who, but someone on Instagram DM'd me 
and was like, you should reach out to Resilience Design because she is amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it to totally works. That's great. <laughs> cool. And Melissa, do you still work with your sisters too? Well, they are both back in the Midwest. Okay. Um, and one of my sisters is here in Portland part time. And uh, we, we definitely work together when she's here. That's yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Great. Um, so what are some of your recommendations for folks who want to start a vegetable garden for the first time? Gosh, that's such a great question. Where to begin? Um, I recommend starting small and building on success. That's a kind of a whole systems design pr principle. Um, and that could mean starting with container plantings or just starting with like a small area. Oftentimes, the first thing people want to do is build a raised bed, which in the Pacific Northwest um, can be really helpful because you can have your you can kind of choose what soil you put in into it and you can, you know, hopefully make sure it's clean and it will drain well, it will warm up faster in spring. And it's it can be ergonomic, it can be really good for accessibility, and also it can be kind of easy to manage and maintain when it's con a contained area. Um, however, it's like a whole project in and of itself to like, you know, do carpentry or whatever materials you're choosing and um, as a expense to get started with. And most people don't necessarily need one and you can create a mounted bed, something called lasagna gardening or sheet mulching where you can put different layers of organic matter down to get started. Um, you might want to dig up the sod first or you can you know build up layers of compost and materials on top of existing sod if you are working on top of something that used to be a lawn. Yeah, that's that's what we did when we first moved into this house was we had a big the front yard is huge and it's fenced, but it was all lawn and we want to do a vegetable garden. So we did exactly what you said, Melissa, we did the lasagna thing where you'd like lay down newspaper and then just cover it with a bunch of compost. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then it just suffocated down the sod and we were able to plant right on top of that, which worked really well. Cool. Yeah, it can be a pretty easy and fast way to get started. And oftentimes you can use materials you have around, like most people have tons of cardboard boxes around nowadays and newspaper and leaves from the trees in the fall and things like that. And you might need to, to buy in some materials and it's good to ask questions when you're, you're buying compost or soil to ask like, has this been tested? Because some products out there are contaminated with herbicides mm -hmm. or that's been a problem the, the past few years in this area where the um, some materials in the compost are coming from um, agricultural uses where there's mm -hmm. been persistent chemicals used. So asking questions and asking if things have been tested and and then, yeah, getting getting some good organic matter and thinking about the health of the soil is your foundation for everything. So how are you going to feed your soil, you know, short term and, and get the garden going and then like longer term, like thinking about what you're taking out of the soil and what you're putting back into it. So if you're harvesting annual vegetables every season, how are you going to like put good nutrition back into the soil? And that could be like maybe you have a compost pile, maybe you have a worm bin. And this leads to the discussion of thinking about your, your household and your garden as like an ecosystem. And like there's the idea of closing loops. So a lot of our, our lives right now, like there's, things coming into our systems and things coming out of our system kind of quickly, but can we like slow that down and be like cycling nutrients on site? Like maybe when you harvest from the garden, the scraps go in the compost pile and then those make good soil that go back into the garden. That's mm -hmm. an example of more of a closed loop system. And then, you know, if someone is like has more yard than what they can produce compost wise, they can, or like earthworm casings or compost, like things that they could pick up at the nursery if they needed extra? And if so, are there any like brands that you recommend that you know are like, you know, natural, organic, good, you know, compost brands out there? Because I know there's, when you go to the nursery, there's just so much compost and soil and any that you know of that are pretty solid. Yeah, that's a good question. So depending on your scale, you might be, buying bagged product or you might be able to if you need a lot you might be getting a delivery or if you have a, a vehicle or a trailer you might be picking up 
bulk soils or bulk compost, mm-hmm. um, which is a lot, usually a lot better value for your money. And also, um, and you don't have like all these plastic bags as waste, you yeah. know, you can totally reuse them. Like at our house, when we end up with them, we use them as trash bags or for different things. Um, but he has, ter- in terms of brands, I don't have any specific recommendations, but I would um, look at if it's organic product and one thing to look for on the labels is omri listed products that's Mm -hmm. the organic materials review institute and they're the ones who look at products on the market and say yes or no if it's okay for organic production like for for organic standard certification production which for home gardeners like our products aren't certified doesn't matter but it can it gives you that clue that 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 product is okay for organic use Um, so that's, that's the thing I would look at because if we're talking in terms of like chemistry, like organic matter is like, you know, most things are organic matter. And like, (laughs) so you could say like, this is an organic product and I've actually seen products that, that say that they're organic, but it just means that they're made of wood chips or whatever. It doesn't mean that they're like organic certified. Yeah. And you talked about whole systems, garden design, and I know, you know, you do a huge variety of outdoor planning, like for, like from forestry plans to like site plans for like our, you know, 29 acres to smaller neighborhood garden, garden designs. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you mean with whole systems design? Sure. Yeah, we do work on a lot of different scales um, and we tend to bring some of the same design methodologies to all those different scales. Um, some people might be familiar with permaculture principles and practices, and that's a, a good example of a whole systems design methodology. That's a, a set of principles of trying to work with the patterns of nature when we're intervening in systems and the idea that we are designing all the time. We're like changing things in our environment all the time and to try to be conscious of those decisions and think through uh, what the ramifications of them might be. So we can think about, you know, how we're interacting with soil, with water, with nutrients, with energy. And there's a really nice process for doing that, which starts with a lot of observation of a site. And it could be, you know, your your yard or your balcony or your patio area where you're going to be starting a garden. Or like in your case, Eva, it could be like a much larger landscape. And you're looking at what are those flows of uh, those elements that are on site? What factors outside the site or influencing the site that could be like climate and weather patterns or in the city it might be you know streetlights and noise and pollution and you know urban wildlife that might be affecting the site and try to anticipate how those things are going to impact the site so when we're making decisions that's like a tiny little overview of kind of how to <laughs> wrap, wrap your arms around like all of the complexity of of each site and yeah yeah, and those are all really important factors for people to think about, like light paths, especially people just like observing the directionality of the light as it moves throughout the day where they want their garden to be, because that's going to mm-hmm. have a big impact on what they're able to grow. Yes. Yeah, the light and the water, those are two two really big ones for that the first step in planting your vegetable garden. That's great. Um, I have a quick question jumping back to like compost for a hot minute, because this is probably one of the few things I can actually talk about and feel like I understand between <laughs> everyone at this table right this second. Um, are you familiar with the company Dirt Hugger, Melissa? I've heard of them, yeah. Do you know much about them in terms of I, their like certifications or anything like that? I have not used their products before. Oh, I was just curious because we actually had the owners of Dirt Hugger as clients several oh, cool. years ago. And so I know that in the gorge, there's a ton of people that utilize their compost and services. And I mean, they talk about it being organic on their website, but I'd it'd be curious to know, like, from somebody that works more in this sphere, what your thoughts were on that. And if if you thought that they were aligned with what you're talking about. Yeah, I would have to look into them. Sure. Yeah, we did get a, a delivery from them out at the land. We got a little bit of compost dumped and spread it around because one of the things you were talking about, Melissa, uh, early on was getting, I think it was like n- breaking up the soil, 
um, mm. because it was pretty compacted from all the logging equipment. So we were talking about daikon radish. So yes, we put those seeds down. Well, Jeremy did because <laughs> I was out of town. <laughs> Full disclosure, Jeremy did all of the work. Um, mm-hmm. But the compost was delivered and he put the daikon radish seeds down and then they, they came up. But it was just so crazy, like for a couple years after, you know, we only did the compost dump that once, but that patch was so mm-hmm. green compared to everything around it. You know, even after the, we cut back the daikon radish and the natives started growing, and then there was like a Douglas fir tree that had been planted in that area, and it was literally like a foot taller than all the other little it's trees wild. around it. So it has wow. makes a huge difference. I know people love their products, um, and I know them personally. They're great people. So awesome. if they are a good choice, I would definitely recommend them in the gorge area. Nice. Cool. That's great. Yeah, I think adding compost to your garden is so great, too. Like, if you do have a compost bin, you know, you can just add the compost to your garden whenever your bin gets full. Um, Or you can also just make it an annual thing that you do once a year. Like, when do you think is a good time to do that, Melissa? Would it be, like, early spring? Yeah, if you're going to add compost, either your own compost or bring in compost. Yeah, doing it in, like, late winter, early spring is really good. And then, you know, kind of going along with whole systems design and things, what can people do to keep their veggie garden low maintenance, but also low impact at the same time? Yeah, well, one of the things I would recommend considering is how much of the space is devoted to annual plants versus perennial plants. Because with an annual plant, I mean, some of our favorite garden vegetables are annuals like tomatoes and peppers and basil and things like that. And so it's great to have those things, especially things that like, have you know cultural significance or family favorites or the things you end up buying most from the grocery store and then there's a lot of food plants that come back on their own every year and don't need to be replanted and so I would consider planting some of those things to lower the impact of the garden Um, and also that helps prevent erosion it helps like feed your soil more when you're not um, like tilling it or digging it up continually Um, Mm -hmm. and those plants could be like perennial herbs like lavender, rosemary, sage, thyme, oregano, marjoram, hyssop, whorehounds, bay, all of those things come back every year and don't need to be replanted. And then there's a lot of vegetables that will come back each year. Uh, asparagus, rhubarb, horseradish, sunchokes are some of my favorites. Um, cannot live without rhubarb in the spring. <laughs> and those guys get can get really big. Yeah, they take up a lot of real estate. So you could design your garden so that those are like maybe around the edges or yeah. maybe there's one area that's devoted to annuals that you know is going to get like dug up uh, continually mm-hmm. every year um, and replanted in some areas that are like more stable that could be like kind of buffer zones along the edges. And then some of those plants don't need as full hot sun as some of our favorite like the tropical annual veggies like tomatoes. And so maybe you organize the space so that like the very best sun is where you can put those heat loving vegetables and then you can if there's any like part sun areas you, where you have more wiggle room, you can put some of those herbs and the perennial veggies. And then, of course, there's all kinds of berry and fruit plants that are perennial. And I love alpine strawberries. Mm. They are really easy to grow and they don't do the runnering like the regular hybrid strawberries do. They are kind of like a little bush almost. And they make fruit all summer if they, if they keep getting water. Um, and they're really incredibly sweet and cute, and you could even put them in flower arrangements. And they also are something that's like hard to find. Um, golden raspberries are another one of my favorite yes. edibles because like you can barely find them at the store or farmer's market, and they're so special and beautiful. And so that's that's one I plant a lot. Yeah, I have those gold. I think the variety I have is fall gold raspberry mm-hmm. and they're so pretty they're like the peachiest like dusty yeah. orangey pink color but i think the reason you can't find them at the store is they're really delicate like yeah as soon as you pick them they kind of collapse on themselves whereas the red mm-hmm. ones are like firmer for some reason so they like ship better mm-hmm. probably but man they yeah. taste so good yeah can you share a few hot weather veggies and cold weather veggies for nor- northern and southern climates sure I've lived mostly in northern climates, somewhere near the 45th parallel either, <laughs> um, in Oregon or Minnesota. So I'm most familiar with those um, 
two climates, which are quite different. Now I'm in zone 8B. If you look at the USDA zones, that means that the average lowest temperature in the winter is um, not very cold. Where in Minnesota, I lived in zone 4, which the average lowest temperature in the winter is like negative 30. Whoa. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, that climate's just, the, the pattern is so different. And, and going from one climate to another uh, was really interesting. I've been a gardener my really my whole life and um, had to get used to the four season gardening pattern that's a possible on, on the west coast and so out here you can really do winter veggies and summer veggies and then if you have a little bit of and i would say this is true for most of the like more moderate parts of the country the southeast definitely in california definitely if you've got some weather mitigation like a cloche which is like a, a little covered mini greenhouse like a raised bed with uh, some people use old window panes or clear plastic or frost cloth. If you've got a little bit of protection, you can really push the edges of those boundaries for having the, the year-round harvest. And my favorite winter crops are, are mostly greens. I like the reseeding vegetables that just plant themselves. My favorite ones are mosh, and that's also called corn salad or wheat, and it's like a very fresh tasting little green arugula and wild arugula or peppery and tasty. And so wild arugula comes back um, pretty reliably for a few years and also reseeds itself. And the miner's lettuce in the Northwest is a native plant as well, but that one's like a very crispy, juicy green that can tolerate super cool temperatures. I love dandelion greens and and then in the summer, there's vegetables that do that too, that reseed themselves and they come up everywhere and you can just kind of edit them out and harvest them where you don't want them to grow. Uh, amaranth, which is a green that has a lot of um, iron and some protein and really nutritious, heat tolerant and lamb's quarters is in that same category. And then uh, mountain spinach, which is also called auroch. Um, and it can be either like dark purple or light bluish green oh, pretty. and those those three all get really big if you don't harvest them they will get like <laughs> six feet tall or oh, ten wow. feet tall uh, so they're they're stunningly beautiful and i use all three of those in floral arrangements as well oh cool um they're mostly tasty when they're they're young mm -hmm. so those would be like some hot weather greens and then in the winter of course all of the brassicas can take cooler weather like the kale collards and cabbages mm -hmm. and then um, when you were living in like uh minnesota what were some of the like ant or the perennials that you could keep there food wise that wouldn't die in the winter because of how cold it was there were definitely there's lots and lots of things that come back every year that can go dormant in the winter and then come back rhubarb um is definitely one of them and black raspberries and other berries and and some herbs, definitely um, chives, dill would reseed itself in our garden every year. And some of the like rosemary and lavender are much more tender. And let's see, oregano, thyme would sometimes come back. Yeah, a little, little bit more limited. Um, and a lot of the plants that die back to the ground and are like protected by the snow, um, some of the hardier ones, lots of medicinal plants like echinacea does great there. Um, that's a coneflower. Those are so pretty. Yeah, they're so pretty, and the butterflies and bees love them. Um, and then the hot weather crops, they do really well because of the humidity, mm. um, and that keeps the nights warmer. And the tomatoes love that. Tomatoes grow a lot at night when the temperature is oh, warm. Interesting. And we in the Northwest, it cools off every night so we don't have good luck with like eggplants and peppers are really challenging here yeah whereas in the, in the midwest like growing up my family would just have like paper grocery bags full of green bell peppers that we would be like wow. here have some bell peppers um so and now cool. i have like a few <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're just like ah oh, that dozen i got from the entire summer <laughs> exactly yeah yeah stuffed green peppers once or twice <laughs> Um, but yeah, the eggplants and the peppers do great. Um, in the Southwest, the heat is great for peppers there as well. So of course, they're famous for the hot peppers. Um, and the growing season is a little shorter because of the heat for some crops. Like tomatoes don't 
you know, after a certain point, don't do well. So in those climates, you're actually probably going to start your plants much earlier, yeah. almost in the almost in the winter, really, to take advantage of the like more moderate part of the season. Yeah, because isn't it like I think tomato blossoms, which is what turns into a tomato, they drop after like nine above like ninety three degrees. They just yeah. won't poll- pollinate properly to make a tomato. Yep. I did want to ask you a question about watering, kind of just taking a step back. Because, you know, I have a pretty big vegetable garden, but if I were to water it by hand, it would take a really long time um, every day, probably a few hours, honestly. But we have ours set up on a drip system. Um, So there's like a little black rubber hose that's like on a line, and then we punctured in holes with the drips and the water just drips out of the hose. And that hose is connected to the faucet, like the spigot on the outside of our house. And then we have that connected to a timer. So you can find timers now to program your drip watering system. So in the summer, we'll do that and have it go like twice a day, once at like seven in the morning and then once at seven in, at night for like 20 to 30 minutes, depending on like how hot it, it is during that part of the summer. Do you ever use drip irrigation systems? How do you feel like they're easy enough where people can set it up? on their own if they're a first-time vegetable gardener like it, what, what are your thoughts on that yeah it's it's really helpful to have some help with watering like you said hand watering can be really time consuming um i think one of the first steps is to decide like how much of the space you have you want to water regularly and then plan for the rest of the space to be as low water use as possible and there's like an incredible amount of good choices for drought tolerant plants. Mm -hmm. And I think we should emphasize those as much as possible with the way climate is changing and the, you know, heat events that we're bound to have more of to try to plan for low water use. And then also to think about how we can use water on site. For instance, if you have the opportunity to create a gray water system and take some of the water you're using inside for like baths and laundry and bring it out into the landscape to use for watering, like fruit trees and things like that. Um, it can be a little tricky to retrofit those systems, but it's possible people are doing that. It's legal in a lot of places now. Storing rainwater um, is another good strategy. Sometimes it's hard if you're in a climate where there's a lot of rain one part of the year and like no rain in the other part of the year. Like how do you, how do you store enough to make it through the dry season? It can be very tricky, um, but it's something to you know maybe start small and with some rain barrels or think about like where's runoff coming coming off your structure and like you know, the gutter from your house, can you create a little microclimate garden there and take advantage of that extra water? So there's those strategies. And then, you know, for an annual vegetable garden or or perennial edibles that you want to produce in a lot of climates, you're going to need to add supplemental water. Drip systems are really great, like efficient water saving way to do that. Mm-hmm. And Eva, you said that like you're watering like early in the morning or later at night. Um, and that's a good way to ensure that most of the water gets down into the soil and doesn't just evaporate like it might in the middle of the day. Yeah. Uh, a lot of my clients have drip systems for veggies um, and container plantings. And there's kits that are pretty easy for homeowners to install that have like really clear directions. So a drip kit might be a good way to get started. There's also contractors that will install a drip system. Um, or if you've got more extensive things that need irrigation for production, then there's also like a professional style system would hook into your water main as opposed to the faucet Mm. Um, and the pipes would more be underground and then they could have drip or they could have sprayers depending on what kind of crops you're watering but yeah those are those are all options and then going back to the soil preparation and feeding of the soil your water is going to hold more in your soil if there's more organic matter so that's why the compost is Mm. important and mulches and also thinking about the kind of the micro ecosystem of the garden, um, like our plants touching each other and creating a little microclimate to shade the soil and help conserve moisture or are there like big gaps between them that the soil is going to get hotter and drier. Mm-hmm. That's the uh, plant spacing is something to think about too. Nice. That's great. Um, so if someone wants to work with a landscape designer, what does the process usually look like? Well, it's usually good to start by checking out different people to see who might kind of fit your needs and your style. 
um, because there's lots of of people out there doing like very different things in terms of style and also approach and and ecological sensibilities. And then usually the process starts with an initial consultation, looking at your site, talking about possibilities, talking about scope. Um, It's good to start talking about budget early on in the process to make sure that whatever is designed is something that's actually feasible um, to build for you over a you know a time period that's either you know a, a one project or a series of projects that are phased out over time and then yeah most designers will put together a set of plans on paper so you have kind of like maps of the hardscape elements the planting elements some designers but not all are thinking about those systems components too like the the water and how you take care of the soil and so those 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 might be overlays as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once you have a set of plans, um, some companies also have a, des- a design builds department so they could help you install the project or some people are do-it-yourselfers so that they would take their plans and, and work on the project in phases. And then, um, yeah, some people have a contractor that they find and and get estimates and then yeah, prioritize elements of their project or or phase it out or whatever the case may be. Yeah. Uh, usually hardscapes go first and then you know, grading and the irrigation and sometimes lighting and, and then plantings are usually toward the end of the project. That's probably the most exciting part, getting yeah. the plants in there. <laughs> yeah. And then maybe you contact somebody like, Sam, I don't know how much work you do with exterior spaces. I know you're an expert at the interior. <laughs> design spaces, but you might have somebody who can help you with, you know, how do you make your outdoor room really uh, user-friendly and cozy and match your style? And there might be elements of your your home architecture or your interior design that you bring out into the garden to create unified spaces. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so it might be, you know, furnishings and lighting and things like that. Do you have a favorite landscape design project you've worked on? Oh, my no goodness. No pressure to say even. <laughs> I mean, well, mine hasn't even really started I'm yet. Just so. No pressure. <laughs> yeah. I won't hold you that. Very exciting. It's one of the bigger projects we've worked on in terms of integrating the, the whole landscape and the home area design. So that's really exciting. And yeah, it is just getting started. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my favorite projects tend to be the ones where, like with even and Jeremy, that the that the homeowners are really involved and they really care about the long-term health of their land. They care about those systems elements and making something that's, you know, ecologically makes sense and they want to be involved. They like want to be hands-on with it. Um, I'm not the right person to, to work on a project where the only thing that matters is like the aesthetics and um, like if it's just for, curb appeal or just for show or something like there's a lot of people out there doing things that are like gorgeous Um, but I really am interested in like how can we engage more with the landscape how can it feed us more how can we take care of it more like that's the point that relationship is the part that's really important to me so any any projects where people you know come back and tell me like wow I've never spent so much time in my yard before wow Mm. I saw a, a, a bird that I've never seen before or you know, my kids fell in love with this this berry that we planted and are like checking it every day and obsessed with it. Mm. <laughs> like that's that's what that's what it, I'm in it for. I love that. That's so great. Any other advice you would give to listeners who are looking to start gardening for the first time? Hmm. Well, I already said start small and build. I think I think the other important thing is relates to what I just said about that engagement piece. Um, the first step of the, the whole systems design process is observation and just like really spend time there. Like if you have a raised bed or you have your, your garden plot started, like spend time just like noticing what's going on there. And if it feels like something's doing really well or not doing as well as you wanted, spend time looking and trying to see like what influencing it and that time that we can spend like noticing what's mm-hmm. going on is gonna like really benefit the the health of your garden um when you're that involved and then also like it's just like one of the really pleasurable parts is to like just like enjoy the growth and the changes over the season yeah, yeah. 
really helps you slow down too and appreciate things. Yeah. And we all need that right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then this is a question that we'll be asking of every guest that we have on the show. What does home feel like to you? Hmm. Home feels like the, the word that comes to mind is grounded. Like there's a sense of connection. And for me, I think that happens when things around me feel tended, but cared for. Mm. And, and there's also certain plants for me that make me feel like I'm at home. And some of them are ancestral plants. And they're plants that every garden I've ever had, I've had them there. And I have them he- here in my garden now. So those, they feel like friends. So having... Mm. Having my plant friends around. <laughs> I love yeah. that so much. <laughs> so good. Uh, that's great. Okay, so where can people find you? Instagram, website, and um, do you have any classes going on right now? I do. My website is resiliencedesign.com. And we put up a, a new website uh, fairly recently. So there's a lot of information about our services. And um, you can get in contact with us there. Um, and then I have a class coming up in February. It's called Design Your Own Yard. It's online and it is a four week workshop that is pretty much like the the whole systems design process that I mentioned. You get to design your own yard or maybe part of your yard and make a map of it and then think through all of those different elements like the soil and the water and the light and then think about what plants might go there and what spaces for people and what amenities for wildlife um so that's a class that i've been teaching for the last four years and it's really fun and then you you leave the class with a plan that you can do for your yard that's so awesome and it's yeah really helpful for you know listeners or people who are interested in starting a garden but feel like very nervous or you know just totally foreign to the idea of gardening um it's nice to have your hand held a little bit and have like a guide taking you along yeah awesome well we're gonna dive into some listener mail too and we'd love to get your thoughts on these as we go through them sure so one is we do like one home themed one and then one garden themed question so we'll kick it off with the garden themed question Um, And this comes from a love affair on Instagram. And she asks, what's the best way to handle weeds? They take over our garden by (laughs) midsummer. And I think we can all relate to this. Um, You know, weeds are, uh, they're they're frustrating, but we also want to obviously not use any sort of like chemical pesticide stuff, especially because we're going to be eating the food. And, you know, at this point, we all know that the science shows that it's actually really harmful for the environment long-term and short-term. Um, so do you have some good weed tackling tips that are more sustainable? Yeah, there's so, so many organic methods. I would say the the, the start of your garden um, is a good time to think ahead about weeds and how you can prevent them. Because once weeds take hold, especially if they're perennial weeds, it can, it can be a lot of effort and time and it can be very frustrating. So I would think about you know, what areas of the yard, like kind of what all the different surfaces are um, and where weeds might want to grow. And then some areas you might want to have hardscape, you might want to have heavy mulches, you might want to have plants that are touching or overlapping when they're mature to prevent that opportunity for weeds to germinate. Mm. And I would think about watering too. When I have people with really, really terrible weed problems come to me, the first question I often ask is, how much are you watering? And the, the answer is often daily or multiple times a week. And that soil surface is remaining moist enough for germination to occur. Mm. So if they scale back, taper off on the watering, let the soil surface dry out in between waterings, usually their weed problem decreases quite a lot. And some of their other maintenance, like pruning, is going to decrease quite a lot because their plants are gonna, aren't going to be growing as rambunctiously. <laughs> um, so that said, it's also really important to keep in mind or to, to learn about kind of what weeds are, why they're here. And ecologically speaking, if we think about the idea of natural succession of landscapes kind of moving through different phases from disturbance to like a mature forest. And we're working in our yards at this kind of early succession high disturbance 
space and a lot of the plants that like to grow in those spaces are what we call like a, a pioneer species or early succession species. And they are ecologically meant to, you know, grow in that disturbed space, create biomass, improve the soil. Some of them are taprooted like a dandelion. And yeah. so they're going to going to help the soil a lot, create air and water channels down there, and then they pull up micronutrients. So ecologically, they're actually really beneficial. And in most places in Turtle Island, you know, the whole United States and um, whole North America, most of the things that are those like plants that grow really easily in disturbed spaces are from Europe, Eurasia, North Africa. So for people whose ancestors also came from those places, they are actually are food and medicine plants ancestrally. And it's really interesting to me that we regard them as enemy invaders or <laughs> um, toxic or um, that, or yeah, we, we use a lot of language about them that's really demeaning and they, you know, m- you know, might, might be important plants for us if you look longer term. And yeah, it's, it's a very interesting dynamic. It's so true. Cause I have you know, my dad's from Greece. We have family that's still back in Greece. And when I was a kid, one year, my Thea Katina came and visited. Mm. Um, and we were like walking around this park. And in Greece, they just call like dark leafy greens horta. And mm. uh, there were dandelion greens all over the park. And she got so excited and she's like, mm. oh, Horta. And she's like picking them. And we were like, okay, don't pick this because like, oh. do- like this is a park. Dogs are like peeing everywhere. Like we don't know, <laughs> like, how's, you know, like what's been on these questionable. Uh-huh. Um, but it's just funny because, yeah, like things that we think uh, kind of reframed all of that. It's just like, oh, like that, that was always a nuisance, you know, in our yard. But to her, yeah. it was like a treasure. Wow. That's such a neat story. But those are those are really good tips, and that's a really good way to look at it. And I know for me, the mulching has been like the most helpful by far. Is like getting ahead of the game, you know. Like yeah. you said, putting down dead a bunch of dead leaves or a bunch of bark, like in early spring, um, and that helps keep them from coming up because they're not getting sunlight. So that's been really helpful. Great, yeah, mulching, and then if you can pull the weeds before they make seeds, yeah, you can yes. you can keep keep ahead of them forever, basically. Yeah. That's key for sure. Okay, great. So then we'll dive into our home question. Um, This was submitted by Our Love Languages Food on Instagram. And she asks, what are some interior home DIY that's worth doing yourself versus worth hiring out for? Hmm. I'm curious. That's a good one. Yeah. Do you have anything that comes to mind immediately? Either of you guys? Um, I mean, for me, there's definitely like no touch areas that I recommend people hire out. That would be plumbing Mm -hmm. and electrical. (laughs) Um, Really just the things that can involve significant damage to your house. Yeah. But other than that, I'm like pro try anything. So, I mean, there's lots and lots of examples, especially on Instagram, if you're wanting to like dive down the DIY rabbit hole Mm -hmm. of people that have transformed their home. So, but if you're just like wanting really easy, like, low impact, low commitment stuff, then I think obviously paint, even like lime washing the wall, plastering the wall, Mm. um, you know, finishes that are pretty easy to apply are great. I think you could do, I don't know, like I I wouldn't necessarily recommend creating cabinets from like start to finish because that obviously takes a pretty significant amount of like woodworking backgrounds. But (laughs) I do have clients that like put together um, ready to assemble cabinets and like, you know, do hybrids where they're maybe using ready to assemble cabinet boxes with uh, coquina or semi-handmade door fronts or side Mm -hmm. paneling. So they're, you know, you can do a lot yourself if you're committed to it. Yeah. I feel like you could do open shelving pretty easily yourself as long Mm -hmm. as you like drill it into a stud, you know, so it doesn't fall out of the drywall or whatever if you put something heavy on it. (laughs) I mean, I, I get it. Labor is at an all time high right now so i mean if you want to maximize your investment it's pretty it's an appealing option if you like are willing to like roll your sleeves up and get to work Mm -hmm. to learn to put some of these things in place in your home so yeah jeremy and i re-sanded down and re-stained our hardwood floors ourselves in our house Mm. yeah it was a lot of work but you can you can do it and it saved us at least a few grand i think yeah totally and i think you can do 
you know, depending on what it is, like certain furniture items, if you want to make them or even just like reupholstering things, I'm totally for making your own curtains. Yeah. I like made a, <laughs> like a dupe of a duvet company, <laughs> duvet that I wanted from, mm-hmm. I think it had to have been from like, I don't know, restoration hardware or something. And I was fresh out of college and it was like $400. So I was like, there's no way. So I just thought I would just spend a hundred hours making it myself. (laughs) And so I did it. I was really proud of myself actually for doing it. So, um, but (laughs) yeah, I think if you are determined then, and if you're willing to accept imperfection, because the thing is like, there's going to be things that happen even when you hire a contractor or an installer. Like there's always going to be something that's not perfect, but can you live with the imperfection being from your own hands? And if you can, then I'm like pro try anything and see how it goes. Totally. What do you think, Melissa? Yeah. Some of those, we did some of our own tile work here and I know people who have done tile themselves taught themselves how to do it. And that seems like a, a fun and like a, where you can like really personalize uh, a room Uh, but also came to mind is like window dressings like making fun curtains or making fun lamp covers or something could be like pretty low risk (laughs) DIY projects yeah definitely well thank you so much for being here with us today I know we picked your brain about all the plant things but I mean I learned a lot and I was really really fascinated by it and I know Sam was excited too. Yes. Hopefully start, we'll start gardening. <laughs> Very excited. When I start gardening, I will for sure reach out and I'll probably be calling, like crying, asking for help <laughs> oh because it's more just that. I mean, to be honest, Melissa, like my childhood upbringing, we didn't have any exposure to like growing food or even yeah. to be honest, like I grew up on mainly processed foods and that's like no bet yeah. towards my parents, but they did the best they could. Yeah. Right. Um, so I didn't even know. Like until I was probably honestly an adult that green beans were like a real thing yeah. that didn't come from out of a can. So yeah. um, so I feel like and even knows this about me, like I'm on this journey as I have my family and kids of like just really being committed to learning what it means to make healthier choices. And we do have my husband's a fifth generation orchardist. So we've had mm. a family farm in Hood River for many generations. And, you know, we ask these questions too on the farm, like, what does it mean to steward the land? What does it mean to like participate in the right thing for this farm? And it's complex. I I did not envision myself ever like marrying a farmer and moving to a small (laughs) town, but Uh I'm so glad I did. And it's, Uh it's a fun journey. Like hearing you mention miners lettuce made me think of my son, my oldest son, he, we have it all over the orchard. And so um, he, when he was really little, he would pick it and think that if he ate it, then we could, he'd find gold in the streams <laughs> on our, oh my God. on our farm. <laughs> and so, so <laughs> it's like, it made me have this like very sweet smile when you mentioned it. Cause that's, that's my <laughs> fond memory of it is like, I didn't Aww. even know that was a thing. And he, and so my, my father-in-law, like they walk around the orchard and he'll find it and then he'll be like grandpa we're gonna go look for gold and so uh, <laughs> he hasn't found any yet but that's okay maybe someday i know i was like i told my husband maybe we should like throw some gold in the the stream and like let him like gold flakes in yeah. there and see him yeah. just like freak out but oh my um, gosh yeah it's been a fun it is it's it's a subject that i just i feel like i'm learning as i go but it's nothing that i've like actually dived into growing myself partially also because we have 35 acres and my husband yeah. is like that's enough so <laughs> yeah totally yeah <laughs> yeah I think so many people are there where they're like looking at the food systems that we've grown up with and thinking about about health and about the the land's health and then also thinking about things yeah like what do we want to teach our kids and and then having things happen like you know, questions about the supply chain and questions right. about food, food miles and yeah. like all of those things together kind of like, you know, pointing more people toward curiosity around like, what if I did grow some of my own food? And like, how hard is that? And, um, you know, what's that point where it's like worth it in terms of like, you know, what you're getting out of it and also like the, you know, the budget and like all of those different pieces. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, it's yeah, it's awesome that more people are trying it. And I think it's 
going to be like one of the pieces for communities to support themselves better and for you know more community care to happen and more and then I think once you start you know growing your own food and realizing like how helpful it feels and how good it tastes and and that satisfaction and being more in connection with the season and also having more like feeling of stability or abundance where you are um yeah. and and then the another like kind of a ripple effect of it is like once you start gardening and having a little bit of success you have something to share and something to trade and that feeling right. of being able to like yeah. be generous and like give you know give things away or be trading things or something that's like another layer of it that's can be really satisfying and nourishing and and, and like more than just satisfying it can be like you know what helps keep communities together and and in the past that's that was how things worked when when people supported each other right yeah it's definitely time to go back to that for sure yeah well i couldn't think of a better note to end on <laughs> that great. was so great <laughs> so thank you so much Melissa. so great having you here and um yeah we'll be in touch you know outside of the podcast but yes indeed. Re really grateful for your time it was just such a joy having you here <laughs> thank you both yeah so great to talk to you thank you thanks bye bye-bye please rate review and subscribe it really helps you can find our show notes with resources and links at feelslikehomepodcast.com. For design advice, send in your listener mail at feelslikehomepodcast at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Instagram at feelslikehomepodcast. The Feels Like Home Podcast is produced by Jeremiah Flores and hosted by interior designer Sam Strzok and styles and photographer Eva Cosmos Flores. Thanks so much for tuning in and stay cozy, friends. <laughs>